It's about how do we maintain what makes the U.S. banking system so brilliant and so good at what it does, but also how do you offer people products that they want? Like people want crypto. Welcome to the Next Gen Banker podcast, where we explore what's next in banking and talk with the innovators responsible for creating positive change in the financial sector. I'm your host, David Ryling, and I'm very excited to welcome Kate Goldman. Kate, thank you for being on the Next Gen Banker podcast. David, thank you so much for having me. Um, so, and I guess as as like a brief uh, matter of housekeeping, I just want to say that anything I say today is, you know, reflecting of my own personal sentiments, not so much necessarily those my employer. But, you know, I live in D.C., so that's kind of the uh, the preamble to every conversation that we have. But just wanted to get that out there. Thanks, David. Totally get it. Totally accept it. And yes, you're right. That is the precursor to every D.C. conversation I have. So uh, I totally understand that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, well, just for our audience, as a reminder, uh, stick around at the end of the episode. We have a musical feature. So each Next Gen Banker episode, we have one new artist from somewhere around the world, um, all sorts of different genres uh, that are represented. So be sure to check that out. And so, Kate, a little background on you, uh, Senior Policy Associate at Elliptic. Elliptic provides blockchain AML analytics for crypto, formerly worked as the FinTech Program Lead at the Milken Institute. And you've authored numerous articles on cryptocurrency, fintech, and equity. So very cool background. I'm looking forward to our conversation. But I have to tell you, in the in the wonderful world of crypto that you uh, that you live in, and for our audience, so uh, what do you what do you do? What is Elliptic all about? Yeah. So Elliptic is a blockchain and cryptocurrency uh, forensics provider. And so we work with uh, numerous stakeholders ranging from banks to agencies to uh, like virtual asset service providers. And what we do is we provide on-chain anti-money laundering technology um, so that we can help them build out compliance regimes that, you know, whether it be third-party due diligence for a VASP or wallet screening, like, you know, OFAC SDN list, um, the Office of Foreign Asset Control, they'll publish um, sanctioned individuals lists. And so on that list are uh, cryptocurrency wallet addresses. And so one of the things that Elliptic would do is, you know, help you as a provider cross-reference, make sure that you're not engaging with anyone who's being pinged on OFAC's uh, sanctioned list. So things like that, basically helping um helping the crypto ecosystem be fairer and safer and, um, you know, less fraught with crime. So that's awesome. I mean, uh, to obviously ears of a banker and those listening, a lot of bankers, uh, that that's one aspect, I think, of crypto that people are like, whoa, who's out there? And isn't it always used for some dark, evil purpose? Um, but the fact that you're providing that service is such, I would say, a benefit to the blockchain and the crypto uh, industry um, be, to make it safe and sound. So now I understand you and you're in DC and you're on the policy side. So uh, what's going on in DC relative to the policy around around crypto and blockchain? Yeah, so it is, I would say the, the conversations around crypto in DC are really different from those, you know, I just got back from Florida two weeks ago, I was in London, you know, on the West Coast. It is very geographically specific, and I think D.C. has one of the most interesting sort of 
lenses on crypto just because of the nature of this town. We've got Congress, we've got the regulators. Um, and so I think DC, for better or worse, tends to take you know, a more sober and harsh look at industries. And, you know, people will criticize DC for moving too slowly, but that is really just the nature of the beast. It's all about how do we understand cryptocurrency and move forward in a way that makes sense, respective to our constituencies, um, you know, the financial market, uh, investor protection, you know, uh, Cybersecurity, like pick your pick your topic. You have to think it through um, tenfold, and you have to sort of like play three D chess. You know, if I do X, what does Y look like for the markets, our international affairs, etc. And so that's sort of everything that's going on in DC. But I've been working in DC crypto policy since. God, it feels like forever, but it's really since the spring of 2019. And, you know, to take you back in time, that was the summer that Facebook had come out with um, what was essentially their plan for Libra, which was, you know, a permissioned blockchain-based stablecoin, which essentially means that its value is pegged to either one singular asset, like, you know, USDC Circle, or in the case of Libra, they had a whole basket of currencies that they were pegging this stablecoin to. And that was a super interesting summer to be in DC because for the very first time, you know, even myself, I don't think people really looked at crypto as something that needed to be taken seriously and that should be thought of in the broader context. I think people you know, had a lot of those preconceived notions of, oh, you know, it's something that criminals use or, you know, like whatever sort of perception people come into it with. And a lot of the regulators, you know, this was just like two years after big tech as a term had been coined. And so, you know, for better or worse, there was a big moment of like, whoa, like, what is this? What are we doing about it? Like, what do we think about it? Um, you know, members of Congress didn't really understand the intricacies of the tech behind crypto. Um, you know, it's definitely a lot better now, but still so much work to be done. Um, but yeah, that was a big turning point moment um, where regulators were actually sort of pausing, looking at the technology and figuring out how they want to react. The plus side and how I'll wrap this up is just to say that I feel very encouraged that hopefully we are moving more towards proactive policymaking rather than reactive policymaking. I come from a policy background and proactive policy is 11 out of 11 times the best way to do it. Um, and so I was really encouraged by the president's executive order, you know, whether it was meaty or not meaty enough or too meaty, whatever your opinion is. I think it was really encouraging to just see such a large and powerful body like the executive office come out with something that says, yeah, you know, we have to continue thinking and talking and looking at crypto. Um, so all moving in the right direction. So very cool. And gosh, I have to ask you from a from a policy standpoint, particularly, how old is crypto? Um, I mean, it's kind of. Uh, maybe from an industry, that's easier to answer. But from a policy standpoint, is there any difference between kind of the life cycle of the two? That's an interesting question. So technically speaking, it is about 
I want to say like 13 and a half years old, okay. which is incredibly like, it's basically a middle schooler if Got you're it. talking about life cycle. Whereas, you know, if you're looking at the US banking system, it's like my great, great grandfather and then some. And then um, a dinosaur. Yeah. Got it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so it is like quite young. I would say as far as proper policymaking, I mean, twofold, half of it is you have things like the Howey test where it's, you know, that's like what, 70, 80 years old, you know, um, how do we define securities? And we've got uh, like banking laws and BSA and, you know, all of your traditional um, money service business type regulations that, you know, is sort of like a natural plug in, but the next iteration, sort of like the maturation of crypto policy, where you're really building things from scratch, that's like a year old, maybe three and a half years old, if you're being generous. But that is far, far newer um, than anything else, I would say. All right. So that's pretty cool. And then how would you compare that to, I mean, everything that I read is like China's way ahead and so-and-so's way ahead. Uh, how would you compare the U.S. to maybe some other prominent countries uh, on the crypto scene? Yeah. So I think a lot of the times we compare ourselves or we get compared like, you know, we have to do X because China's doing it or because Russia's doing this. But I don't think the U.S. has ever strived to be like China. I hope we don't start doing that. Like the, you know, we'll see. But um, no, I think we should move to distinguish ourselves. And, you know, everyone's trying to adopt technology and everyone will. Like all countries will digitize, you know, in their own time when it makes sense. We have a very different set of goals and aligning policy and, you know, like thought leadership strategies in the United States that really differ from those in more authoritarian regimes. Um, so I don't think we're behind or ahead or next to anyone per chance. I think that America is doing what it does best, but, you know, I would like, I would like to see things move quickly. You know, sure. that's me just being impatient, less so than me putting my policy hat on. Got it. Oh, that's very cool. I love that that answer. Um, uh, so let me touch on one thing that I find around uh, crypto and blockchain a lot, and that is there's passion. Um, yeah. And there's passion for and there's passion against. And um, uh, gosh, how do you explain kind of the importance of blockchain and crypto to people on not only what it's maybe around today, and maybe if you know the answer to the passion, but the, the fact is, is what do you see for those two? And again, distinctly the, the blockchain, the technology, as well as the, the cryptocurrencies that are out there. What do you see in the future for that? Yeah, I think you're a hundred percent right. There's so much passion and energy in crypto. And I mean, just personally speaking, that is what makes it so enjoyable to be around. It is like everything, it is an imperfect system that has a lot of maturing to do and a lot more growth to be done. I mean, look at the progress in the last 12 months, five years, 13 and a half years. Like it is developing and changing so quickly. And I think that rapid evolution of the technology is because there are so many people coming to the crypto space you know, from a Wall Street background, from a 
you know, a human rights background, lawyers, advocates, uh, policymakers, so many different people who are coming together and bringing their perspectives and their insights to just make a better system. The literal birth of crypto was because someone said, I feel like I can do payments better. I feel like I can make a monetary system that just works better. I think the banking system is full of flaws. I think crypto is full of flaws. But I think the beauty and what makes it so exciting is looking at those challenges or all of the problems and saying, how do we move forward? Like, how do we take the good of everything and just make it widely accessible and widely available? And then as far as like use cases, I think what's happening in Russia and Ukraine is it's devastating and it's sickening. But the way that crypto is being leveraged, firstly for donations to Ukraine, it is hard to get a lot of money cross-border quickly. And you lose, you know, you're potentially losing out on a ton of money on fees depending on how you get that money cross-border. Like remittances are expensive, especially when it's, you know, when you're talking about something like Ukraine, minutes cannot be spared. Dollars cannot be spared. You need fast money that is easy and borderless. And that is an incredible power of crypto. And it is really exciting. And then on the reverse, when you have people, you know, fleeing a country who, you know, they need to take their life savings and get out and, you know, go to somewhere that is physically safer for them, the portability of crypto. Again, it is really, really life-changing. And so I believe in this technology 110%. I would be the first to say that it has its problems, but you can't get up every day and work in crypto without seeing, you know, the the long-term vision, the long-term plan. Yeah, definitely. So going to that point of that financial inclusion, that financial uh, equity. So remittance is a great use case for it just because of the fact that um, obviously you disintermediate all the players in between uh, the remittance game. You go direct um, as well as immigrants and conflict zones. Anytime that portability aspect of it is, I don't know, it's super fantastic from that standpoint. It's, it's very efficient. Um, the other one that, and maybe more in a business context, is it seems, and I get your reaction to this, from contract execution. Hey, I want you know X number of tons of strawberries from Ukraine to come to Minnesota. Um, boy, once they hit the border, payment is automatically done. It just, again, it eliminates uh, letters of credit and insurance and all the various kind of things that go with it or embedded into the process. Um, that to me from a enterprise level seems to be a massive opportunity. Any thoughts on that? 110%. Like the supply chain, I mean, this is less so in my day-to-day -day life and more so me just being obsessed with the technology. Um, like there's a company and I wish I had their name off the top of my head where they're using blockchain to validate the supply chain of diamonds where, you know, diamonds have, you know, difficult history of where they're sourced sometimes. And, you know, people aren't going to stop getting married. People still want engagement rings and they want to know where their diamonds are coming from, like, you know, as a business. Um, and then also as like a purchaser, 
there is a massive need to understand where your goods are being sourced. And you sort of want that like guarantee that, you know, this is where this came from. Um, and so this company is basically using blockchain to fully, um, you know, make transparent the supply chain of these diamonds. But, you know, you can reduce duplicities in, uh, you know, purchasing power and um, basically just like the more technology that you're integrating, if it's well thought through and well executed, you're saving money, you're saving time, you're allowing people to do their jobs better, faster, easier. Cool. Hey, let me take you back for just a second on the individual side. So I get the the use cases around um, it's less expensive to send a remittance, but there still are fees in in the crypto world. Um, yeah. So, for example, I go into uh, Ethereum and then I want to move it to Bitcoin and then I want it to come back. I'm paying a fee every time I move or store something. And so it's not that it's free, but um, how would you kind of describe the... I don't know, the cost benefit in this particular case, as opposed to, yeah, I think that there's a myth there to say, oh, it's just I'm on the blockchain, it's free, everything's free, and maybe yeah. not so. Yeah, you're 100% right. And I think that is absolutely something that policy could maybe step in and make better, technology as well. I mean, without getting too nerdy on you, it's because like crypto is property by all you know IRS intents and purposes. It is property. And unfortunately, you know, property is taxed way differently than, you know, sometimes it's collectible, always different than money, basically. Um, and so you're paying these, you know, short term capital gains taxes, which are, you know, not insignificant sums of money, um, even long term capital gains taxes. It's, it's still a hefty chunk. Um, and so with like-kind exchanges, tax exemptions, it used to apply to things like art and other things. Right now, you only get a like-kind tax exemption when you are purchasing investment property, which essentially means if you buy one piece of investment property and say I make $100,000, instead of paying capital gains taxes on that, if I roll that 100K into an even bigger investment property, you, know, you get a little uh, pardon from the IRS. And so because crypto doesn't count as a like kind exchange, you know, for example, when you buy an NFT, I have to put money into my, you know, Ethereum MetaMask wallet. And then I have to then convert that to an NFT. So it's like a double taxable event to bring it on and off chain. Um, and again, it's just because of like tax property, um, you know. It's a whole other, you know, basket of worms that I won't bore your listeners with. But yeah, no, it, that, it is really interesting. Where it's like, is it a payment system? Is it property? Is it what you make of it? You know, that's not going to fly by government standards. So I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a funny one. Yeah, definitely an evolution to be had there. That that will improve in time as I think uh, things advance. Um, it was funny. I think there was some that used to be a loophole in the law where um, if you think of crypto uh, as property or a commodity, um, there was uh, I think there was some court case where somebody was trading strawberries for paper and then paper was being uh, traded for something else. So the barter system, they all had a value to them, um, but it was a tax exempt transaction and it made it all work. And so it's a bit like the same kind of scenario with different different cryptos. But um, one thing in regards to uh, so working with un and underbanked. Uh, so 
These are folks that obviously don't have access to the system today or are seeking to get some. And maybe the the toughest part that that I see in, in working with clients like this is um, how do you explain to them crypto? And maybe it's just um, I'm so used to explaining the banking system to them that maybe I just throw that out the window and I just figure out ways to simply explain explain crypto, but that seems like a challenge, particularly um, in, in serving communities, maybe not familiar with, with what's currently, maybe it's just a whole new system to start with. How do you think about that? Yeah. So crypto for serving like underserved markets or those who have been underbanked or unbanked. And I think it's important to understand why people are typically under and unbanked in the United States. And there's two main reasons for that. And the number one reason is that it is too expensive to be banked in the United States. That is time and time again, the number one cited reason by the FDIC, like these massive surveys that they do. It is really expensive to be banked, um, particularly if you are low income. You know, overdraft fees are not, that's not touching the one, the top 1% or even, you know, the vast majority. Um, and so I think because of that reason, a lot of people, you know, are unbanked or are looking for other options. And so I think that is initially a massive drawing point. And even for, you know, the vast majority of us, like if you park all of your money in a savings account, just simply by the rate of inflation, you know, you're losing out. But also at the same time, I wouldn't recommend that you go 180 degrees separate and put all of your money into, you know, Bitcoin or, you know, any sort of, you know, like highly volatile cryptocurrency. And so I think most importantly for people who are unbanked or underbanked where, you know, most often they can't afford a $400 financial emergency, it is not by mistake that the US banking system is the best of the best. It is the safest, it is the best place to park your money. But in a 21st century world, you know, people want that tech integration. People want to realize high gains. And this isn't like a perfect answer to your question, but I think what is so exciting about, you know, the FDIC asking their banks to disclose, like, what are you guys doing about crypto? You have the CFPB. Um, you know, taking a closer look at like crypto and consumer uh, protection. It's about how do we maintain what makes the U.S. banking system so brilliant and so good at what it does, but also how do you offer people products that they want? Like people want crypto. It didn't become a $3 trillion market cap, uh, you know, because of meme coins or, you know, a big joke, but People want these products, but I am fearful of underbanked and unbanked people turning to crypto alone because there is no recourse in the same way that there is in a banking system. And I think there are a lot of crafty people out there who are, you know, straight up, they're they're doing crypto scams. Like, let's call a spade a spade. And I think it makes me, it keeps me up at night to think about people who are, you know, the most vulnerable to financial crimes. It's elderly people. Like I have elderly grandparents. It's people with low financial literacy. And so I don't want to see them, see those groups of people have their money wiped out by Bitcoin or crypto 
but I also don't want to see them lose out on opportunities for economic gains. And I think the important piece about crypto that people really love is that there aren't these barriers to entry that exist for most other systems. Like there is no accredited investor rules for crypto. Yeah, so we're definitely in that development process. It's interesting how you how you uh, bring this up and play with it because um, in a lot of conversations I hear, it's like, oh, blockchain's coming, crypto's coming, totally going to take over the banking system. Um, but it kind of sounds like you see some duality there. You're going to have a, a banking system that is very similar maybe of what it is today, but then you also have this connection with crypto and they flow and they play in maybe the same ecosystem. Does that sound accurate? 100%. Maybe it's just because you know, I'm spoiled. I'm the youngest child. I truly do believe that uh, we can have our cake and eat it too. I don't believe in, you know, sacrificing or, you know, picking one or the other. I think that we 1 billion percent will have a world where banking isn't going away. You know, I would eat my hat if the U.S. banking system went away. That would be absolutely shocking to me. I would also be shocked if crypto went away. So it's really just about like, how do we come to the table as mature adults, you know, putting aside like, okay, I'm coming from the banking sector, I'm coming from the crypto sector. And how do we just talk about financial health in a modern context in a way that serves, you know, the most disenfranchised to, you know, the top 0.001% gajillionaires who are like, you know, ruling the roost. Like, right. how do we make this work for everyone? And that I think is more so now the framing that people are taking where, you know, used to be like, oh, crypto is like threatening banking. And now, you know, crypto gets their their feathers ruffled by stable coins and CBDCs. Like, no, enough. It can all work together. What that design looks like, you know, that's a, a conversation for another day. But I, I do firmly believe that it is all, all doable. Cool. So with that in mind, um, so there still is, uh, let's, uh, let's say, some traditional banking as we know it today, and there's some bankers. So what do you think the next-gen banker looks like? I think the next-gen banker looks like everyone that you pass by on the street. I, I hope that there are more bankers who are more diversely representative, younger, more women, more, you know, BIPOC bankers. I want to see, you know, because banking has this history of being like the gatekeepers and like the marble, uh, the institution, like it has this, you know, this pristine legacy of like, oh my God, it's untouchable. It's the banking system. But I think when you have people on the inside of the banking system that more accurately represent the customers that they're serving, that's when you have more that's when you have fairer access to lending and money and just financial tools that make sense. You want people who look like you, you know, you want people who understand what it's like to grow up in all sorts of different neighborhoods and income levels and all of that. I think that is, you know, it's the melting pot country and I think we should embrace it a little more. Yeah. And it almost sounds like you, you touch on something that I, I never really thought of before, but it's, um, 
it's really taking some of the control of what is in banking today and giving it a piece of it to everybody. So yeah. what does it mean to be able to do remittances better? What does it mean to be portable with my currency and my money? Well, that gives me the control, not necessarily the institution, the control. Um, and as a result, uh, I'm freer. I'm maybe have the ability to do more things and, and intersect with more people. So it is a bit more, I think, democratic from that standpoint, but uh, that piece of that control. Well, Kate, I just have to thank you uh, for being with us today on the Next Gen Banker podcast. We appreciate your expertise and everything uh, crypto and blockchain today. Um, good luck out there. Keep fighting the good fight. I'm a, an advocate for this. I think it's just fascinating to see how fast it's uh, crypto's grown, to see what can be done with blockchain. So big future, but obviously all that disruption comes with some mess and transition, but uh, we'll leave it up to you to straighten it out in DC and uh, we'll be all good. Awesome. I've got my work cut out for me. But seriously, thank you, David. Thanks for having me on. Sounds good. Thanks, Kate. For this episode's musical feature, we're showcasing Mason Zagoda. Mason is a Nashville-based singer-songwriter who seamlessly meshes influences from the late 1960s and early 1970s while bringing a depth to her lyrics not heard in mainstream music. Her latest release is her 2021 EP, postcard to the world. Here is her single, Your Visit to the Louvre. That was Your Visit to the Louvre by Mason Zagoda. You can hear more of Mason's music on Spotify and on Mason Zagoda, that's Z-G-O-D-A.com. If you would like your music featured on the Next Gen Baker podcast, email David at nextgen-banker.com with a link to your music and website. Thanks for listening to the Next Gen Banker podcast. We'll see you next time.